You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. Welcome to the Transformative Podcast that is part of the Red Sets Research Center for the History of Transformation. I am very happy to have Professor Dariusz Stola with us here today. Dariusz Stola is a historian professor at the Institute for Political Studies at the Polish Academy of Sciences. He has authored six and co-edited four books and published more than a hundred scholarly articles on the political and social history of Poland in the 20th century, the Holocaust, international migrations and the communist regime. Between 2014 and 2019, he was a director of the Poland Museum of the History of Polish Jews. Welcome, Dariusz. Hello. So, your pioneering work is at the intersection of Jewish history and migration history in socialist Poland, and you show how migration and mobility were as much about control as they were about agency. How did migration impact the lives of Jewish minority in socialist Poland? Well, my claim is that migration was the single most important factor shaping the Jewish community in post-Holocaust Poland. But as you said, this is a topic at the intersection of several topics, and I like researching migrations or researching minorities' history because they are like a litmus test, telling us much more than the history of this minority or the history of migration. They tell out about the country, migration comes from about its political regime, its economy, and so on. It was very important for the Jewish community. Basically, this community was reduced from some quarter million people to 15,000 people within 25 years through migration. So building on my previous question, I wanted to ask how the presence and experience of thousands of international students from Asia, Africa and the Middle East and South America and socialist Poland enter into that equation. So would adding their perspectives contribute to the new research avenues that could reinterpret socialist regime of mobility and migration? What are your thoughts on that? The misperception that the Soviet bloc in Eastern Europe was sealed from the rest of the world is unfounded. It was intended to be in the early 1950s in the Stalin era, but soon afterwards, after 1956, these countries gradually opened up. And Poland was among the leaders of this opening. Poland was relatively open both for the incoming foreigners and for the outgoing Polish citizens, especially as some countries, West Germany and Israel, were heavily lobbying to let the co-ethnics leave the country. But in terms of coming to Poland, you're right, especially in the 1970s, we see a development of usually bilateral agreements between Poland and developing countries, what we call today the Global South, to strengthen the economic development of these countries and strategically pull them into the Soviet sphere of influence, the communist bloc sphere of influence, which resulted in a growing number of students, especially from the Near East, North America, North Africa, Asia, coming to Poland to study. And they lived in relative isolation. That means they were concentrated at a couple of universities. They lived in a housing separate just for them. But this isolation was much lesser than the similar solutions, for example, in the Soviet Union. When they couldn't travel, they were supervised much more closely. So in Poland, this could result in a growing network of personal relations between those people and local Poles. So we have friendships, we have marriages resulting from it. But for a country which was about 35 million people large, a few thousand foreign students could not make a big change. 
They were visible, especially those coming from Asia and Africa, but they couldn't make a big change. They could make change among those who are in touch with them, who could talk to them and realize that the world is different. For example, that socialism may be different elsewhere. The ideas of socialism may be different. And then these relations lasted longer than the communist regime in Poland. So, but what about the offspring of these mixed marriages? What about contemporary Polish people of Asian or Black ground? Do you think that they can make an impact? This is a relatively small group, but it's important because these are the pioneers of the new kind of diversity. Mm. Historically, Poland was among the most diverse religiously and ethnically countries in Europe up to the Second World War. Through the genocide and the change of the borders and deportation of minorities, Poland became one of the most homogeneous countries in Europe. So we could see a certain return of diversity, but a new kind of diversity resulting from migration and including resulting from migration from faraway lands like Vietnam, like Libya or Algeria. This small group was a kind of a laboratory how someone coming from a different culture, learning Polish as the second, maybe third language, looking differently, could integrate. And in some cases, we have success stories, and some cases less so. Most of those student migrants returned to the countries of origins, which was social capital for Poland, obviously. And possibly they brought some of the knowledge back to their homes. But for Poland, it was the beginning of a longer process, which we see today, the expansion of immigration. What about social brain drain or like brain gain? Have you found anything of that in the archives that you looked at? The communist regime in Poland wasn't so much interested in. Actually, they were rather loyal to the agreements with the sending countries to send the students back. If you have a student coming to the United States and then staying, this is a brain drain. This is a brain gain for the United States. But there was no such thinking in communist Poland. Mm. It was not the case. Poland had a surplus of the labor, contrary to, for example, East Germany, which needed unqualified or semi-qualified labor. Poland didn't. Poland had a surplus of especially rural population. It rather had problems with placing its own educated people. So communist government didn't think yet. It was only in the last 10 years that Polish government started to think about migration in terms of acquisition of human capital. Let us move to the current crisis and issues. So contemporary crisis around migration and minority politics show that Poland is linked with global issues and conflict. How can the history of migration help us unpack what is happening today at the Polish-Belarusian border or with the arrival of Ukrainian refugees to Poland? Now, this is very interesting because you have two sections of Poland's eastern border. The section of the border with Belarus and neighboring section of the border with Ukraine. And you have shockingly different policies. The border with Ukraine after February 24th, last year after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, was completely opened. Millions of people were crossing into Poland, many of them without passports. So Polish government, to my big surprise, because we have a populist and xenophobic government, suddenly opened the border for refugees from war to Ukraine. At the same time, it continued a very ruthless, brutal policy of pushbacks of illegal migrants crossing the border from Belarus. And we have thousands and thousands of people who were seduced to Belarus by a promise of relatively easy access to the European Union. And they try to cross the border, which crosses forests between Poland and Belarus illegally. Many of them would clearly receive a refugee status if they were allowed to apply for the refugee status. 
the Polish government violates international law, it violates Polish law through this pushback policy. So we have a striking differentiations of policies at a relatively short section of the border. It also shows, especially the Belarusian border case, is that Poland is no longer isolated from the major migration pressure line in the contemporary world, which has been the global south and the global north. Poland became the global north. Historically, up to 1989, Poland was part of the global east, something different, not the south, not the north. To some extent, it remains. Clearly, the Russian aggression of Ukraine is a consequence, kind of inertia of the thinking in terms of the global east, Russian-dominated global east. But among the Poles, including myself, there was a feeling that we are in the backwaters of the big migration flows. It's relatively quiet. Few people were moving to Poland. Many more people were crossing Poland in transit, using Poland just as a transit land to reach Germany or France or the Netherlands. In the last few years, the situation changed dramatically. But could you say that Poland kind of lost its innocence? So is it really now? Now is the moment. We cannot, like, you know, turn our head around and just pretend that we don't see the problem. Like the question is like, what do we next? What are, what are the solutions, the long-lasting solutions? No country is completely innocent, but there are countries that have founding myths. And the founding myth of Poland is the Polish hospitality, that we are good for people coming. We are hospitable. It took a little effort to the government and the populist party that runs the government in Poland to explain to the Polish population that these are not refugees deserving assistance, that these are dangerous economic migrants and a weapon in the hybrid war of Belarus and Russia, which it did essentially change the attitudes towards the migrants in Poland, which became in large sections of the population that support the government hostile. So you have a government which is feeding xenophobia and then exploiting it for political reasons. However, a little bit later, we have this really generous reception of the Ukrainian refugees. So at the peak moment, there were some 3 million of them in Poland. Now some 1.4 million remains, and these are mostly women and children. There are no refugee camps. Almost all of them are in the houses of someone. Mm. So that was bottom-up, grassroots reaction, which surprised me. After the reactions to the migration across the Belarusian border, I didn't expect such a hospitality. But yes, it was, and that was really great. It showed that depending on the narrative we can offer, mm. very similar people fleeing war, be it in Syria or in Ukraine, need very different reception. So now I'd like to move to the more public history section. Mm. So as a former director of the Poland Museum, you also have professional experience in engaging with the past outside of the university. What would you say are the main traits and challenges of doing public history in the meaning-making process for the involved communities? That was a very important lesson for me because I'm an academic. You know, I always produced articles and books or lectures, you know, speaking to a relatively narrow audience my students or my colleagues, fellow historians here in Poland and, and internationally. But at the museum, we had an audience of several hundred thousand people annually. So much larger audience and much more diverse audience. So you can, in the same hall, have someone who is a professor of history and someone who is a semi-literate and knows nothing about history of Poland or history of Polish Jews. So first, of course, there must be a bottom line. What you show and what you say must be understandable for those who know less. So we had kind of ideal. A tourist from Japan 
or a tourist from Portugal. You know, Portugal is important because they didn't take part in the Second World War. How do you explain it to someone who knows virtually nothing about history of Poland and history of Jews? So this is, this is the beginning. The language must be clear and simple and not confusing the audience. And it takes a lot of effort. And in this field, I learned a lot. I think this is the basic skill of a public historian as opposed to academic historian. You must learn the language of your audience. I don't mean Chinese or, or, or Portuguese, but I mean the language of the people who are not academic historians. Okay, so that's the first step. But the second step is like, how else do you create accessibility? How do you make sure that it's actually comprehensible? So there are various levels of accessibility, you know, beginning with, is it accessible for someone on a wheelchair? Is it accessible for someone who is blind? Is it accessible for someone who doesn't speak Polish or English? We have all the inscriptions at the museum are in Polish and English. And there are ways to respond to these questions. Yes, make it accessible for wheelchairs. Build the lift when it's necessary. Yes, offer audio guides in 20 languages, including Belarusian. I think we are the only museum in the world to have Belarusian audio guides and Yiddish audio guides for symbolic reasons. For example, we had exhibitions for children. So when preparing the exhibition, I had a strange group of consultants. Among them, there were constitutional lawyers, because that was about the democracy and the rule of law, and seven-year-old children who helped us test exactly the accessibility of the language we were using. Both of these groups had to be satisfied. It must have been solid from the point of view of a constitutional lawyer, a professor of constitutional law, and clear from the perspective of a child from the first class of elementary school. And these various aspects of accessibility, there are many of them. What time do you open? What time do you close? If you close early in the afternoon, it's not accessible for people who work. Dozens of questions, which you should make a checklist, and then continue asking questions to your audience. What was difficult for you? What would you like to change? So, for example, right at the beginning, we have set up a special email address to make comments about the exhibition. First, if there are no mistakes, you know, if you make a big exhibition, you must make mistakes. It's impossible not to make them. And also, what would you like us to change? But now maybe just a question about this kind of value and framings and kind of a priori knowledge that we have when we enter a museum, especially in museums such as Poland, when there's a very complicated and intimate relationship between the Catholic majority in Poland and the Jewish minority. And just like building my own experience, like a, someone who has a Vietnamese background, the community doesn't have anti-Semitic framings of the Jewish minority. So when they go to this museum, they see it in somewhat different ways. So how do we accommodate that without imposing on them this complicated framework of a Polish Catholic who perhaps has some kind of a complicated personal relationship to the Holocaust? Any exhibition, like any book, cannot be completely neutral. You cannot make it perfect for everyone. And then comes the choice. Who is your primary target group? And our primary target group are young Poles and Jews. Jews globally, Israelis, American Jews. Polish-Jewish community is very small. So, of course, this is the first group to make it. Then you have non-Jewish Poles, 37 million people at present. Then you have other visitors. And we learned after a couple of years that about a half of the visitors are foreign. Biggest group are Israelis, of course, and Americans, but there are also many Italians and Germans and Czechs and really a variety of people, you know, something like 80 countries of origin of them. So, as I said, first is the language to make it accessible linguistically, but also thinking of this, maybe they can read it, but do they understand it? 
or do they understand it well? You know, speaking about the Polish-Ukrainian border and relations, one of the most dramatic moments of the history of Polish Jews is the Khmelnytsky uprising in the mid of 17th century. Khmelnytsky is a great leader in Ukrainian history, a national hero. He is on the banknotes. But for Polish-Jewish history, he is the leader of the horrible massacres that occurred during an anti-Polish anti-Polish nobility uprising of the Cossacks and peasants. It took some time to explain, to frame it in a way which is acceptable and truthful at the same time. And I suppose with many subgroups of the audience, maybe there is something which we don't know yet. But establishing a mechanism to receiving a feedback, what you don't like and what you like is a way of exactly responding in a flexible way. Thank you so much for this really wonderful and inspiring conversation. Thank you. You have been listening to the transformative podcast produced by Redset in Vienna. Wir sind das Volk! Wir sind das Volk!